Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to be dealing with an objection to Calvinism and how it relates to our Christian assurance. If you like this content, please, uh, you can head on over to the blog and click on the uh, Become a Sponsor link there to sponsor uh, this and other content. You can head over over to the YouTube page uh, to check out some of the apologetics resources there. Uh, But for now, let's dive right in and ask the question, if Calvinism undermines our Christian insurance. Enjoy the show. What is Christian assurance? Well, historically, assurance has been equated with the inner witness of the Spirit. It's not assurance or confidence that some doctrine is true, but rather assurance of our right standing in Christ as adopted children and co-heirs with Christ. That is, it is assurance of our proper standing, our righteous standing in Christ. It is assurance that we are saved, not assurance of how people are saved. Think of the the hymn lyrics from Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. It's not merely intellectual affirmation of some theory of the atonement. It is that the atonement has been effectual for me personally, and that I am and will experience all the benefits of being in Christ. Now, some anti-Calvinists have tried to say that Calvinism has a problem grounding Christian assurance because it does not affirm a, a, a universal view of the atonement. That, that somehow if we do not affirm that Jesus died for the sins of every single person, we have no way of knowing that he died for us in specific. Or even that it presents a false gospel somehow and makes Paul a liar in 1 Corinthians 15.3 when he writes, quote, For I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, end quote. The claim is that we should be able to say this to anyone, the unbeliever included, and that if the Calvinist cannot tell the unbeliever that Jesus died for our sins, that is, ours including the unbeliever, then it's somehow another gospel or makes Paul a liar. So I'm going to address those two objections in order from the supposition that the universal atonement is what is needed to ground assurance to the all the way to the claim that Paul claimed that the gospel was for our sin in the universal sense, including the unbeliever. But before I do that, I want to survey some of the biblical data about assurance and how we have assurance to put some basic concepts in place. 
First, we're going to we're going to see that we are expressly told that the spirit is what gives us our assurance in Romans 8:15 to 16. Paul writes, quote, "For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father." The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Notice that it is the Spirit himself that testifies to us, that proclaims to us that we are children of God, right? It's not by, by looking to the atonement that I know I am a children of God, right? That I'm a child of God. It is by knowing the testimony of the Holy Spirit that I am a child of God and that therefore I can know and properly infer that the atonement has been made effective for me. 1 John 3, 24 says, quote, the one who keeps his commandments remains in him and he in him. We know by this that he remains in us, by the Spirit, whom he has given us. That is, how do we know that we are in him and he is in us? By the spirit that he has given us. Jesus also tells us that we know we are disciples by our perseverance. That is, our perseverance is part of what confirms. Uh, it's part of what grounds our knowledge. It is a what's called, philosophers call a warranting condition. That is, our perseverance is continued evidence of our standing in Christ. I don't have to wait, by the way. This doesn't mean that I have to wait until I die to know that I have completely persevered, but that my continued perseverance in the Lord is warranting evidence. John 8, 31 to 32 says, quote, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, quote, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, end quote. That, that, is, that is by continuing in him, by our persevering, then we will know, right? The, the perseverance is a warranting condition. Matthew 10, likewise says, quote, And you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved, end quote. That is that our, our continued endurance is evidence that we will be saved. Now, <clears throat> endurance has to finish at the end for it to be a fact, right? But our continued endurance is epistemological grounding. It's warrant for our belief. Paul agrees in Colossians 1 to 22, uh, 22 to 23, he writes, quote, And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death. Notice that the reconciliation happens at the death. That can't be true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever isn't reconciled in that way in Christ, uh, right? That is only in us. Continuing on, he wrote, uh, reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, end quote. Again, it, it is our continued uh, continuance in the faith that we have been established and steadfast, steadfast and know that we have been reconciled to God through him. 
So uh, Hebrews continues uh, the, the same trend in Hebrews 3.14. He says, for, quote, you, for you have become partakers of Christ, right? This isn't just, you know, the, the general universal atonement. This is saying that it has been made effectual. We are actual partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end, right? Our endurance is evidence for us that we are partakers of Christ, that it's effectual. We're told that that we identify trees by fruit. We all know the, the Matthew 7, 16 to 20 section uh, where it talks about the different fruits in the trees. And it says that every uh, tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. That is, you will be able to identify the good tree from the bad tree. What type of tree is it? Is it a saved tree? Is it an unsaved tree? You'll know them by their fruits. And we're told in Galatians 5 exactly what the fruit of the Spirit is. So by seeing the work of the Spirit, by the confirmation of the Spirit, by the fruit of the Spirit, we can know what type of tree we are. We can have warrant for that belief. We can have grounding for our assurance. Part of the fruit, by the way, just is our obedience. I'm not going to go through all these verses, but you can you can see in passages like James 2 where it talks about faith without works is dead, right? You can talk you can look at John chapter 2 all throughout John chapter 2 verses 4 through 6, verse 10, verse 19 that talks about how we can know that we are in God, that we abide in him and he abides in us and so on and so forth by our love, by how we love the brothers, by how we remain in him and walk in him. You can see more of this uh, in in John 3, 4, 1 John 3, 14, and 1 John 4, 13 to 16. Uh, 1 John 4, 13 says, by this we know, again, this is, a, this is a, a, an epistemological, this is a warranting condition. How is it that we know? By this we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given to us his spirit. Again, it's the Holy Spirit that we know. And how do we know that? Well, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world, to know that we have believed the love, or, or sorry, whoever, sorry, uh, let me go back. Uh, the Son is the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, right? So we see it by the Spirit, by confession. Uh, again, Second uh, Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Again, we're not talking about conditions for justification. This isn't, it's, it's not that you have to do these things and practice these things to be saved, right? It's the fact that we work these things out in our life by reliance on him, by the sacraments, by, by word and all by, by obedience, that we know that we are saved, right? It's based on the abiding of truth, not merely the statement of truth, right? We see in 1 John 2, 23 to 24, uh, John writes, quote, who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you will also remain in the Son and the Father. What grants our assurance? What's the grounding of our assurance? That what we heard from the beginning remains in us, right? 1 John 4, 6 says, we are from God. The one who knows God listens. 
The one who is not from God does not listen. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, we, we can look to, we, we know that we are in God. We know that we abide in God and he in us by looking to the fact that we are continually remaining in the faith. We are continuing to uh, be obedient to his word. Okay, so without going then into a full defense of limited atonement or particular redemption, as some call it, since I've done that extensively elsewhere, as of others, let's just look at the criticisms that somehow it makes assurance impossible because unless we know that Jesus substitutionally died for everyone, that I somehow can't know that he died for me. Okay, first, the logic of that is just a non-starter. It's just nonsense. Right? The, the objection just doesn't make sense. It doesn't get off the ground. It's like saying that unless I know that my parents have bought a birthday present for everyone in the world, I have no way of knowing that they bought one for me. It's honestly such a radical non sequitur that I, I'm somewhat surprised anyone <laughs> seriously takes it even remotely seriously. Right? It, it just The objection itself just falls flat from the very get-go because it's just invalid from the start. Uh, but okay, let, let, let's let's just ignore that validity issue if we can if we can ignore it. It just doesn't get off the ground. But but let's ignore that for now and go on to the second thing. Second, remember that assurance just is assurance of salvation. That is that my assurance is in the fact that I am in Christ. Right? It's, it's not just some doctrinal knowledge, right? It's that I'm in Christ. Remember, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, right? Is that, that my, my assurance is that I am an heir of salvation, that I am a purchase of God, that I am born of his spirit, that I am washed in his blood, right? Again, my, my assurance is that I am in Christ. This means that my assurance is concerning uh, if the atonement, whatever it was and whoever it was for, has been made effectual in my life. That means that even if someone affirms a universal atonement view, they, they, cannot, they, they cannot actually ground their Christian assurance since the question is precisely if it's been effectual in their life. Has what Christ accomplished on the cross been applied or manifested or credited or whatever language you want to use, has that been made true in their life? This means that our assurance will always, no matter what view of the atonement someone's hold, it will always necessarily look to the features listed above, the inner witness of the Spirit and the confirmation of the fruits of salvation, including primarily continued and growing faith. We can see this in examining, actually, we can kind of flip this as, you know, a reverse internal critique of the universal atonement view and would it even add anything to assurance. Imagine for a second that the universal atonement theory was true and Jesus died in an atoning and propitiatory or substitutionary manner for every single person. This logically necessitates that Jesus' death was equally for all who spend eternity anywhere. Eternity with God or eternity suffering wrath in hell. Now, I'm going to ignore the questions of double payment 
and what it even means to say that Jesus was the propitiation, that he was the full satisfaction for all the wrath of God against sin, and yet someone suffers God's wrath in hell for their sin, if that even makes sense. I mean, let's put a pin in that for now. But, but that means that, that it doesn't matter where someone spends their eternity. It would be, on that view, equally true that Jesus died for them. The outcome is irrelevant to who Christ died for on this view. That means that the statement, quote, Jesus died for me, can be just as truthfully uttered on this view by those in heaven as by those in hell, right? What can that possibly add to my Christian assurance then? What can it possibly add to my Christian assurance if it can be equally true of someone in hell? Nothing. It can't add anything. Surely when we speak of Christian assurance, we mean something more robust than, than what statement could be equally true of those in hell. If a universal atonement is the determining basis for my assurance, then someone in hell can have the exact same assurance as me on that view? We both can say Jesus died for me? We both can say, me and the person in hell can both say Jesus paid for my sin. We both can say Jesus suffered the full wrath of God for my sin. I mean, how does that, how does that add to my Christian assurance if it's equally true of someone in hell? How can that add to my assurance of my salvation if it's just as true for someone experiencing eternal damnation? Nothing. So the grounding of Christian assurance on the universal view, if it's going to be meaningful, must be on some other basis, right? It must be on the basis by which we can have assurance that the death of Christ was effectual for the believer. To this, then, the view of the scope of the atonement, that is, the, the scope who Jesus died for, is irrelevant to what grounds our Christian assurance. It's irrelevant to, to what warranting conditions we have to believe that, the, that what Christ did was, was effectual for us. We all look to the promises of the gospel, that, that eternal life, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the adoption as children, that, that we have an imperishable inheritance that, that's ours in Christ. We all look to those promises proclaimed in the gospel and, and in partaking of the sacraments, and we know that we possess them. We have, we have assurance of their reality in our lives by understanding the finished and accomplished work of Christ by our partaking of the sacraments, the inner witness of the Spirit, and the observation of faith and fruit in our lives. The Calvinists and the non-Calvinists then have the same evidences that ground assurance as any other view, at least with this regard. The scope of the atonement does nothing to mitigate this disagreement. Now, let's move then to the claim that somehow the Calvinist makes Paul a liar. For, for doesn't Paul say that Jesus died for our sin in 1 Corinthians 15? And that if the Calvinist can't say that in our gospel present, if, if we can't say that, if we can't say that Jesus died for our sin in our gospel presentation to the unbeliever, then somehow we're presenting another gospel. Okay, this objection is, is so trite, again, that I'm, that I'm somewhat... I have a hard time understanding how people can take it seriously. The answer is extremely simple. 
Paul is merely summarizing the efficacy of the gospel to the believers that he's writing to. I mean, that's not rocket science, guys. Calvinists and non-Calvinists do the exact same thing. As Christians, again, this isn't even a Calvinist thing. As Christians, we can all profess Jesus died for our sin. To unbelievers, we proclaim what we see proclaimed in the evangelistic efforts of the apostles throughout the books of Acts. Jesus as the culmination and fulfillment of all the promises of God to redeem a people for himself. That Christ died for sinners and promises eternal life and all the benefits therein to all who would repent and believe. This is the exact same gospel. I don't need to, I don't need to, uh, to use efficacy language to the unbeliever who it's not yet efficacious for. It's the exact same gospel. We're just talking about different statements on efficacy. Same as any non-Christian view of any gospel promise. I mean, think about it. Do non-Calvinists not tell Christians that, that we have eternal life, whereas we tell the unbeliever they may have eternal life if they believe? Is the changing of the verb and the changing of the pronoun for who it's efficacious for mean that we're doing, that we're presenting different gospels? If we say that Christ won our inheritance, but to the unbeliever that Christ was, uh, that Christ won an inheritance for all who are in him, are we presenting two different gospels because we're, we're telling the Christian what's already effective for them and we're telling the unbeliever what could be effective for them? Is it is it lying to tell unbelievers that Christ won an inheritance to all who believe in or his and we don't say Christ won our inheritance to the unbeliever? Is that is that is that making you know Christ a liar? I mean of course not. That's just not how language works. I've given exact examples where the non-Calvinists do the same things with things like justification or sanctification or inheritance or being indwelled by the Spirit. We wouldn't tell an unbeliever that Jesus died for our justification, but we would tell that to believers. What we would tell the unbeliever is that Jesus died for sinners so that those who believe may be justified. Does that mean that the non-Calvinist is saying another gospel or that they have two views of justification just because they use the first person pronoun with believers but not with unbelievers? I mean, no, that's just that's just silly. That's just that's just not how language works. Paul is telling the believers in Corinth, he died for our sins. That doesn't mean that it would be a different gospel if he didn't tell that exact same sentence with the exact same pronouns of efficacy to the unbelievers. But instead, he said, to, he said to them that Jesus died for sin for all who would believe. It's that he's talking about people for whom the atonement has already been effective. So if I'm talking to a church or even a Christian, if I don't have some kind of absolute Cartesian certainty that they are in fact elect or something like that, does that make me a liar if I give those promises? I mean, couldn't they be a false convert and fall away tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now and, and not persevere to the end? So if I say that Jesus died for, for our sins or Jesus has won our inheritance, but then they fall away 10 years, does that make me a liar? I mean, I mean come on. Well, if someone's a professing Christian and I have no reason to doubt it, right, we just presume that it's a credible profession. We speak to them and we speak the promises that are made for all believers. 
we, we tell them that they're adopted and have an inheritance in heaven and have been saved from the judgment of hell. I mean, we, we all do this type of thing. We all, we all presume valid professions. I mean, we do this in everyday language, right? If someone, if someone tells me I'm in pain, right, and I don't have some defeater for that, I don't have some reason to doubt them, I just presume that their first person personal profession that they mean it, that it's valid, right? I, I, we don't we don't just go around saying, oh, well, and, until until I can prove without a shadow of doubt, until you die in that profession, I can't know it, right? We don't do that. The non-Calvinists would tell the, the <laughs> would tell the person the exact same thing, even though maybe ten years from now that person might fall away. Does that mean that the non-Calvinist would be lying earlier? If, if the non-Calvinist Right. If, if the provisionist or the Arminian or the Lutheran or the whatever tells someone who professes to be a believer that, that, that they have the indwelling of the spirit, that they have the adoption of sons, but then that person falls away. Does, does that mean that the non-Calvinist was lying? No, that's, that's that's just not how that's just not how we do this type of thing. Again, I, I can say to a whole congregation, Jesus is your brother. You are adopted in him and have the inheritance in heaven stored up for you. That doesn't mean that I have some type of Cartesian certainty that every single person in that congregation is saved. In fact, I'm pretty sure that some people there may not be saved. I'm speaking in general terms. The promises and reality of those who are saved and have genuine faith, those are what I'm speaking about. Paul doesn't say, quote, what I just claimed I know with certainty is true of each and every single person that hears it that I say it to. Right? That would just be nonsense. He says in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, quote, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is the first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of his own possession to the praise of his glory, end quote. Does Paul have to have some type of Cartesian certain knowledge that every single person in the church of Ephesus was a justified true believer that had sincere faith that they were actually sealed with the Holy Spirit and would be guaranteed their heavenly inheritance? But that if even one person only falsely professed or fell away belater, that they would somehow make Paul a liar? I mean, again, that's just not how language or, 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 or rationality works. Paul and the Calvinist and the non-Calvinist, we all can give statements of promise to a congregation or to any professing believer without knowing with some type of Cartesian certainty that none of them are not true converts or won't ever fall away. I don't need to wait until someone dies in the faith 50 years from now before I can reasonably believe that their profession of faith was valid and that they've been filled and sealed with the Spirit or that they'll escape hell or have an inheritance or heaven or that they're, they're co-heirs with Christ or that they're adopted with me as a, as a, as a fellow brother and sister of Christ. It's just, it's just not the case that we need to know for certain until their death to proclaim the promises as actual for them. When someone professes faith and we have no real reason to doubt, we just presume it's a genuine profession. We all do that, Calvinists and non-Calvinists. Let's stop these, these type of silly arguments that we have to have some type of Cartesian certainty or else we're lying, right? That's just, that's just, that's just, a, a, like, that's just a silly way to try to, to run these, these debates. That's just, that's just a, a, a total non-starter as an objection.
right? It, it shows like it, it kind of a, it, it actually shows kind of an insincere heart in in trying to understand and have real engagement. So again, not only does the limited nature of the atonement on Calvinism do absolutely nothing to undermine the Christian assurance that the atonement of Christ was effective for the believer and that we have assurance by partaking in the sacraments and observing the fruit and by the witness of the Spirit. But also, the Calvinists, just like everybody else, has absolutely no problem proclaiming the gospel to the unbeliever while also speaking the promises of our benefits that we have, our benefits and blessings that are, in, that are ours in Christ, already ours, actually ours. We just don't have a problem with that. All right, thank you again for joining. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out to me, freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog, freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Again, this is more of a theological issue, but if you want to follow some of the apologetic stuff, you can check out The Freed Thinker on YouTube. Or for any discussions, head on over to the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Again, thank you so much for joining. Good night, and God bless.